Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Alright, good morning everyone. Um, you are listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio. On 3CR, good morning. Oh, 8.55am. <laughs> 8.55am or uh, broadcasting digitally at 3cr.org.au. Alright, so we have um, quite a big program today. Um, we've got um, at least two interviews coming up. Um, they'll probably be um, later in the second half of the show. Um, so for the first 45 kind of minutes, we're probably going to be just talking about lots of kind of different news, st- um, the different news and issues that have been happening um, in both Australian politics and internationally, and specifically from um, the people's perspective, the working class perspective, and um, or um, uh, away from the corporate distortions that um, occur in the mainstream media. And we're coming at you this morning from the 3CR studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, uh, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And sovereignty was never ceded. And, yeah, respect to all elders past, present and future from the lands that we're coming at you from. Alright, so I guess um, we can start off by talking about um, the most headline news that has probably happened in the past few days. Um, Pauline Hanson had her first um, maiden speech in um, Parliament. Um, It was basically, um, to summarise it, I think the only, well, I don't know how to describe it. Um, It it was like a speech by Pauline Hanson. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like what you would expect um, from Pauline Hanson. Um, you know, a, a lot of sort of you know racist, Islamophobic bigotry. And um, and actually, um, in response, um, the Greens, <laughs> all the Greens um, um, senators actually walked out um, during her first uh, main speech, which I you know thought was quite good. Um, my personal opinion is I thought that was quite a good you know mm. action. You know. It's taking kind of like, you know, a principled stand um, against racism. Um, mm. You know, there's been some interesting responses um, to both those things in the mainstream media. Um, with some of them, you know, some particular media commentary uh, in, say, the Sydney Morning Herald um, condemning the Greens maybe for that, that particular action, mainly not mm. from the perspective of defending Pauline Hanson, um, but I guess it comes from this argument um, that, you know, we cannot solve racism through um, through being nice to each other kind of sort of uh, line, line of argument, yep. um, which I personally, I would disagree with. Um, I think that I actually support the Greens in, you know, taking action because, you know, you need to call out, you know, what racism mm. for what it really is. And my personal opinion, we've kind of gotten in this um especially in the United States where you come into this sort of um this sort of I would argue sort of when it comes to the issues of racism, um, there's this issue of people being um being sort of silenced for calling out what it really is when racism occurs. Um people are silenced from, you know, calling it out from what it really is and uh, there's always this sort of argument of nuance and, you know, no, there's actually more to the story. Well, no, actually I, in the case of, say, Pauline Hanson's 
bigotry. I think it's just can be called out for what it is and you know, it should be argued um, for and there should be some action. Mm. Yeah, and there's this idea that oh, we, we need to debate the ideas that Paul Hanson is presenting in the Senate. It's a place of debate. Well, those green senators made the probably the strongest statement that a bunch of senators can make by not staying present to listen to her bile and getting out of there. So, yeah, good on them, I reckon. Um, I guess um, in terms of other um, exciting news that has happened recently, um, in that if you read the latest Green Left Weekly, um, you'd fi- um, find a news story uh, about Chelsea, um, Chelsea Manning or um, um, uh, undertaking um, hunger, sh- um, going under hunger strike, which um, she is currently imprisoned right now um, for being a whistleblower um, in the United States. Um, but she went on hunger um, in the article. Argue, um, it says um, states that she has gone on hunger strike for the demand of winning being granted um, gender assignment re- reassignment surgery. Mm. Um, actually, the update is since then um, she has actually been granted that demand. Um, so that's um, a positive news story um, for today. I know I read a story from Telesur, the Latin American uh, progressive news source that was going around, and I. I didn't have time to read it properly, but the article is saying that um, Julian Assange has offered to hand himself in to US authorities if they release Chelsea Manning. Oh, pretty. That's a. That's a. Oh yes, I actually saw that article on the way here, but I didn't get a chance to read it. So mm. that's basically the headline story, and so I guess we'll have to stay tuned um, for further mm. developments on that. Um, um, I guess another the another interesting things that have been happening is um, there's been there was also an article um, yesterday um, that um, the immigration minister Peter Dunton um, has um, actually sort of almost conceded um, to the possibility um, because previously um, New Zealand um, on when it comes to refugees who were detained on Nauru. Or um, that New Zealand had actually offered um, the possibility of taking those refugees in and settling them into the community. Um, previously, I remember under the previous immigration minister Scott Morrison, um, that was apparently um, not on. That was not a possibility at all. That you know we that could, we shouldn't we. It, can never happen, um, but um, Peter Dunton has actually stated on the record that he um, he would consider the option of um, settling refugees from Nauru to New Zealand. Um, which but the, the offer would have to come from the Nauruan government. Yes, which is, I guess, maybe a problematic because um, the Nauru government is um, not quite has done some quite it's been quite questionable. And the New Zealand government have then turned around and said. Our offer was to the Australian government, not to the Nauruan government, which is interesting because it's like they're um, embarrassing or putting the pressure on Australia to say, no, these people are actually in your care and if you want to send them here, it's got to be by your sort of um, executive order or whatever. Um, guess um, that's um, the next other story actually that has um, happened um, recently um, in, in the United States. Um, 
So this might have been um, um, in the United States. Um, there's been a big sort of um, protest against um, the Dakota pipeline. Mm. Um, and um, and a more interesting story. Many um, one of some of our listeners probably know of um, Amy Goodman. Um, in developments um, related to Native American-led protests against environmentally destructive um, mega pipeline, um, North Dakota issued a arrest warrant on September 8 for um, the Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman. Hmm. Um, for and it's specifically um, directed to her coverage of the protest. Um, she, the pro, um, the um, Democracy Now! actually reported that. Um, the Goodman faces a charge of criminal trespass, uh, misdemeanor offence. Um, the case, um, it, from the state of Dakota's perspective, um, stems from democracy now's coverage in North Dakota over the Labor Day weekend of the Native American-led protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, you know, basically, d- democracy now filmed footage. Um, um, of um, film footage, you know, of the protests, mm. um, and it was seen that security guards um, working for the Dakota Access Pipeline Company were actually using dogs and um, pepper spray to attack protesters. Mm. Um, you can actually see the footage um, on online on democracynow.com, um, um, but. Um, as a result, the um, when this report went um, online, it went um, it went viral and it, it was actually viewed more than 13 million times on Facebook alone. And of course, the um, the footage was rebroadcast on many outlets, including CBS, NBC, NPV, um, CNN, um, and so on. And of course, um, also charged um, in these charges was Cody Hall um, for his alleged presence at the September. Third land defence action and for a subsequent protest on September the 6th. Um, of course, Hoare is also considered a lead organiser in the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline and um, was arrested at one of the checkpoints that have been erected by North Dakota authorities to restrict access to the Standing Rock. So, yes, um, according to Going back to the criminal charges of Amy Goodman, um, according to the criminal complaint against Goodman, um, the charges are based on a ruling of Democracy Now's review report of the incident. Um, and, you know, basically um, Amy Goodman can be seen um, on the video identifying herself and interviewing protesters about their involvement in the protests. Um, of course, to date, um, Democracy Now! noted in response in response to these charges and to the allegations that, you know, to date none of the private security personnel shown in the video, the ones that were seen assaulting protesters and commanding their dogs to attack them, have been charged or arrested. Mm. Um, and... Uh, in sort of what we're to from here, um, Democracy Now! is consulting with attorneys in North Dakota as well as the Centre for Constitutional Rights um, because, you know, um, CCR legal director Baha Azami said this is clearly a violation of the First Amendment, an attempt to repress this important political movement by silencing political co- media, media coverage. Mm. So, yeah, it's pretty... Pretty standard, but uh, not not unsurprising. But it just goes to show, yeah, the h- hypocrisy of uh, the the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I guess people talk about freedom of speech, yep. but uh, when it comes to the crunch, if that freedom of speech is expressing a view that uh, is not well liked by the bourgeoisie, then 
it's dispensable. Yeah, or particularly the the establishment in general, like you know anything that threatens um, the status quo is actually um, you know got, um, gets you know faced with repression and um, threats. Um, but actually, um, we're going just switching around from Australian to um, local international news. Um, but I guess going into um, Australian news, some other recent interesting developments. Um, has been to do with um, a statement um, by um, the Secretary of the Rail Trades... Um, it's a Rail Trailway... Rail, Tram and Bus Union. Bus Union. RTBU. Um, they've basically put out, um, in relation to uh, upcoming review of the Metropolitan Rail franchise, um, who basically... Um, Mem- um, basically state, you know, as members would know, um, the state government is currently in negotiations with Metro, who have indicated that they're keen to retain um, the contract to continue operating the Metropolitan train network. Um, for sort of listeners um, who might not know the background to this, um, previously, um, um, Jeff Kennant, um, back in the 90s, um, a lot of our public transport, um, so Zane could correct me because it's actually before I was born. Um, a lot of I was quite young as well. Yeah, you're so. quite young as well. Um, but a lot. Um, but from my understanding, the history, um, public transport, like you know, the metro, um, all the train lines and that in um, Victoria were actually all publicly, publicly. owned. Hmm. Um, but in the 90s, um, Jeff Kennett um, privatised the railways. In hmm. the 90s, um, this I, it says it's um, actually in here the statement. Um, Jeff Kennett privatised the railways in the 90s, arguing um, privatisation would boost productivity and cut running costs. Um, but now, as the Metro uh, franchise is, you know, soaking up um, more than $1 billion of taxpayer funds each year, it is clear that what was promised by um, the Kennett government has failed and is now time to review privatisation. And so, basically, um, what, um, what the... Um, what um, the RTBU campaign for is actually in light of this sort of recent review um, is that, you know, um, we bring back um, the public transport in um, our public transport in Melbourne mm. back into public hands. Um, you know, um, the, they state that, you know, the government um, should learn from the failures of the past two de- decades and aim to increase their oversight and network operations and ensure that it is run in the best interests of Victorians and not the best in the best interests of a multi- private multinational corporation. Um, as a minimum requirement, it is critical that the government takes a common-sense approach of a competitive tender to ensure value for money. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, they're basically um, they're encouraging um, through this statement, um, they're encouraging all their members to get involved in this campaign, um, so, you know, by speaking to their dele- um, to speaking to their delegate organizer or calling the union office. So this could be potentially, um, potentially interesting. Um, um, this is a, a campaign I definitely support because I'm all in favour of you know public um, ownership of um, of, uh, of public of uh, um, of assets that should be public and mm. should be prioritised. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see um, where this ca- um, where this union campaign goes. Yeah, it's uh, significant. It's not something that's, um, I guess, with the railways, it is actually a more winnable campaign, or it is a bit easier because, the, from the sound of it, the actual infrastructure is still publicly owned. It hasn't been sold off. What has been privatised is the operation of it in these recurring contracts. So, every time these contracts come up for renewal, uh, for renewal, as is happening. It, it provides an opportunity to take it back into public control. 
Right, um, you're back on Green Left Weekly Radio um, on freecr.org or or A55 AM. All right, so I guess um, the next kind of news story, we're going to be um, looking at some articles um, from the Green Left Weekly. Um, from the start, from that um, beginning, we'll, I'm just mentioning, making mention of some sort of headline stories. Um, but a particularly significant um, article in um, the latest Green Left Weekly um, is um, an article written by um, Nicholas James. Um, it's, it's, um, its account is um, in relation to Save the Children. Um, to give a bit of a background, um, Save the Children, um, a charity organisation that, well, you could possibly already guess um, what their kind of function and what what are they kind of about. They're um, exclusively about, you know, child welfare, um, helping children, you know, possibly in you know poor third world countries or even in Australia. Um, so basically, this article um, argues that um, um, makes a sort of critique. Of um, save the children. Um, this is in response to um, into a um, into a comment um, by um, by Rise, um, which is um, which is a, a group called um, Refugee, which is a group that consists of um, refugee survivors and ex-detainees um, from um, the refugee um, from mandatory detention. Um, they made a, uh, a statement um, that, you know, um, they wrote a letter basically criticising um, Save the Children, particularly for their lack of accountability um, in, you know, because basically the background, as this sort of article states, is that um, Save the Children actually have workers um, that work in mandatory detention um, and they are, and RISE has sort of, you know, called them out for sort of their compliancy um, in the mandatory detention gym and they state that, you know, we are appalled by the apparent hypocrisy in the actions of your organisation, um, publicly condemning the detention of children while accepting um, lucrative sums of money from the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, um, the very same abusers of both adults and children from our community with the children under your care being caged and abused rather than being saved. And of course, um, as the article states, there's been sort of no formal response um, from um, Save the Children. Um, and in Ramesh um, Fernandos from Rise um, told Green Left Weekly in the article um, that NGO agencies such as Save the Children and Salvation Army have held contracts for years in detention centres. Um, there can be a culture of silence or secrecy and lack of accountability. Um, of course, um, Green Left Weekly um, in their article uncovered that a corporation that provides military trips to the Department of Defence is the employer of one board member. Um, this is critical because um, because one of the specific questions Rise asks of um, Save the Children is that Paul Ronalds, um, the CEO of Save the Children, um, publicly urged um, refugee advocates to accept um, asylum seeker boat turnbacks are here to stay, considering um, the fact that the operation of boat turnbacks in dangerous lives of asylum seekers. Does your organisation endorse this compromise of human lives, including the lives of children? Yet, yeah, but at the same time, um, there's been, you know, um, uh, there's been sort of, you know, um, Save the Children, it's a bit more like a nuanced picture than Save the Children being like a terrible, you know, organisation uh, because there's been actually examples of, you know, Save the Children workers revolting, um, you know, taking action against um, their management. Um, for example, um, 
whistleblower Victoria Rehacker, a former Save Children aid worker, appeared in the US media last month um, recounting the horrific stories of life on Aru. Um, and she is quoted here saying, um, three days into my first rotation on Aru, there was an adolescent boy who had been sexually assaulted. Um, the child was living in in fear of this sexual assault being repeated not just to him but to his mother who was living without a partner in the detention facility. Um, and, um, but of course, um, in, but, um, but basically in the, the rest of the article basically kind of, you know, mounts sort of a critique of, you know, the role of kind of NGOs, you know, who, you know, work for, um, who, you know, have a, have compliance into sort of the mandatory detention, and, and of course, it states here that um, you know Rise um, is calling for a bottom-up boycott by calling on teachers, doctors, nurses, unionists, and public advocates to boycott jobs in the detention centre. Um, and of course, um, jobs may now only come from corporations. Uh, it's stated here in the article at the end that you know jobs, in light of this, you know jobs may now only come from corporations as controversy has seen the charity sector and say the children outtended by Transfield, now known as Broad Spectrum, with on present $1.2 million contract that involves catering, cleaning security to a subtracted partner and welfare. Hmm. It's interesting. We've looked at, um, we've looked previously at, at how, uh, but by some analysis, those private security companies like Wilson are, the weakest link and uh, a strategic target for refugee activists and if we can um, pick them off and put enough pressure on them to stop uh, accepting those contracts that's going to be a way to get these centres shut down mm-hmm. uh, but it's yeah it's interesting to see this initiative as well kind of like a black ban or, or a green ban where workers are being encouraged to Boycott that work. Yeah. Well, what my kind of um, opinion is, um, you know, like just reading that, um, just you know, um, summarising that article is, um, it kind of shows um, the importance of, you know, in terms of the refugee movement, you know, the actual importance of, you know, taking activism and political action, um, because my observations in the refugee movement, um, there's sometimes been. Um, this sort of tendency that we should just, you know, fall back on, you know, the NGOs that are, you know, giving, you know, welfare support to refugees and, you know, that's where all refugee accuracy should end. In fact, I do, I would agree that, you know, um, corp, um, company NGOs like, say, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre play an important role, you know, um, you know, providing donations and services to refugees. But, you know, you're, you're never, um, I think, as the you know case of save the children shows, you're never going to create um, the change we kind of need, the political change we need, unless you get involved in sort of activist groups and you know campaigns to actually you know put the government account into shutting down these detention centres. Mm, for sure. All right, um, you're back on um, Green Left Weekly um, on FreeCR and um, A55 AM. All right, um, so I guess um, the what what else um, do you have any sort of interesting kind of news uh, to discuss and share, Zane? I do indeed. Uh, yes, there's an article doing the rounds on social media at the moment by US climate commentator Joe Rom, writing for Sync Progress. Record smashing August means long-awaited 
quote-unquote jump in global warming is here. Rom says NASA has supported that last month was not merely the warmest August in 136 years of modern record keeping. It tied with this with July 2016 for the warmest month ever recorded. And for 11 straight months starting October 2015, the world has set a new monthly record for high temperature. So even though 2014 set the record at that time for the hottest year, and then 2015 crushed that record, NASA says there is a greater than 99% chance that 2016 will now top 2015. And it probably won't be close, according to a projection tweeted out by NASA's Gavin Schmidt. And in this article, there's a graph showing a, a noticeable new big jump in, in global average temperatures for the year. Uh, Roma asks Kevin Tremberth, one of the world's leading climatologists, to comment on the stunning jump in global temperatures that we've seen in the last 18 months. And Tremberth said, The increase in carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping gases from human activities is relentless. The effects on global mean surface temperatures can be masked by a natural variability for a decade or a bit more, but as the natural variability goes in the other direction, i.e. other than instead of kind of countering or, or not showing the rise in temperatures, as it goes in the other direction, suddenly it's quite a different story and record after record gets broken. And Joe Rom says, that's where we are now. Global temperatures often jump over a couple of years, and then they rise more slowly. So when you're looking at the temperature going up over time, it's like a staircase or a ladder where the steps are sloped up. And the climate science deniers make a lot of noise during the short periods of slower warming, and they stay strangely quiet at times like now, when the temperature jumps really rapidly. Go figure, says Joe Rom. Trendberth explains that the nature of the changes going on now suggests that we've made another step up the ladder to another rung, and it won't go down again. That means that the recent bouts of extreme weather will be routine all too soon, but then even worse records will be set. It's not something to welcome, and it's hard to plan for. And then there's another story going around. Um, Labor supports cuts to ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. And that's a story from Sophie Varath at renewaconomy.com.au. Uh, Sophie does a bunch of good reporting there. Um, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency will have its funding slashed by half a billion dollars after Labor and the Coalition agreed on Tuesday to a compromise deal on the government's omnibus budget repair package. As Renew Economy flagged last week, the compromise came after ARENA sought to strike a last-minute compromise on its funding position in an effort to keep going. Several scenarios were reportedly outlined by the agency's board, including that the cuts be reduced to three or $500 million, and the agency has been awaiting news of its fate since March when the Turnbull-led coalition proposed to essentially defund it and replace it with a new Clean Energy Innovation Fund, in inverted commas. The two mainstream parties finally agreed on stripping $500 million from the remaining $1.3 billion legislated budget in the agency that was created by Labor in 2012, 
but which the Coalition has spent three years trying to get rid of, along with the Climate Council, the Climate Change Authority, the Carbon Price, and originally the Renewable Energy Target and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So just last week, ARENA announced the 12 large-scale photovoltaic projects that won grants in what many might thought be the agency's last major funding round. The tender was credited for reducing solar PV costs by 40%, and a similar program is being sought for large-scale solar thermal storage. Um, in the meantime, Labor is taking credit for, quote-unquote, saving arena with this uh, sort of compromise that strips half a billion dollars from it. But others are not so complimentary, like the Greens, who described Labor as, quote-unquote, clean energy charlatans because of the move. Labor had absolutely no reason to cut half a billion dollars out of ARENA, climate change spokesman Adam Bant said. If Bill Shorten had joined with the Greens in the crossbench, we could have stared the coalition down and found fairer places to raise revenue. And I'd, I'd just, if you would, I, I, if you'd indulge me, I'd just like to have a Friday morning rant. Yeah. <laughs> just, just briefly. Yep. Alright, now it's time for Zane's Friday morning rant. Today, listeners, I want to talk about Arena on Steroids, a giant renewable energy agency with renewable roid rage, smashing the business model of coal and gas-fired power stations to pieces like the freaking Incredible Hulk. Instead of an arena with a $1.3 billion budget to invest in renewables projects, we could have an arena on steroids with a budget of $300 billion paid for by taxing the pants off the rich and corporations. An arena on steroids could get us to 100% renewables in a decade. It could support rooftop solar and solar hot water for individuals and small business. It could fund large-scale renewables operations and maintenance companies in Aboriginal communities out in the bush. It could support a flourishing of co-ops like the Hepburn Community Wind Farm and Earthworker Co-op. It could invest in the necessary grid upgrades and connections to link the various wind and solar generators into a big web. It could deliver a big fleet of publicly owned wind and solar parks delivering cheap energy and generating revenue for the public purse. Dear listener, an arena on steroids. Let's make it happen. Yeah, it's kind of um, interesting, um, Zane, because when you, when you see all these kind of um, developments in politics around climate policy and it's so depressing. Like it's like it feels like nothing is going to get done. Um, like we need much more radical action than actually what's being delivered now. In fact, what's being delivered now is actually absolutely pathetic in comparison to sort of what would be considered because the moderate reforms actually aren't even happening. That's really what's frustrating. Mm. Um, we actually have a special guest um, in the program. I'll turn your mic on. Um, we have um, Bronte here. Um, Hi. Bronte is actually uh, an activist um, from Sydney um, who's actually been, um, listeners would um, might remember, but we did, um, we recently did an interview with, um, a, there's, well, we, there's an occupation happening in the Sydney College of the Arts, mm. um, basically calling on the, um, basically the Sydney College of the Arts is going to be, I think, shut down. Um, and so basically a group of protesters um, have gone together um, with the support of unionists and broad community groups to basically occupy the Sydney College of Arts until um, they restore funding, full funding back to the SCA. So 
And good Bronte's morning, Bronte. one of them. Morning. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Morning. How are you guys going? Hey, good. Yeah, no, it's good. We've recently actually just won our first demand. Yeah. Um, so the dean has stepped down, Colin Rhodes has stepped down, and that was one of our demands, so we've won that. And I think that really shows people trying to play down this campaign, but I think that really shows how much traction we have and how strong we're fighting. And I, I do really am positive about this campaign. I think it's a well-fought campaign. Yeah. And was Rhodes dean of SCA? Yes, he was dean of SCA, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Ah, oh, good riddance, Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great, yeah. And what was his position on the whole plan to shut SCA down? He was, yep. he was pro, he was pro-merger, yeah, so he was, he was pro-shutting the school down. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Mm. An, so, yeah. An initial domino down. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's it's great, and we've got we've got a long way to go, but we are fighting hard, and we have a lot of community support, and we have um, unions New South Wales that have supported the occupation. We have so much union support, which has been so great and so fantastic and so amazing. I think that's one of the reasons why the cops hasn't pulled us out of there yet, because we've got so much support, and um, it just really shows that you're heading in the right direction. We've got that much support behind you. Yeah, I think um, as I said, I think before that on a previous show. Um, that um, it's actually, well, the SCA is actually becoming one of the longest student occupations of, a, say, maybe a public, uh, any kind of space. 26 days today. Um, 26 days. It's been going on for 26 days, and as far as I understand, there's actually no sign of it stopping no. at this point. Um, I actually like to ask, um, sort of like, um, to sort of describe maybe sort of the um, in and outs of the occupation, like, you know, the sort of community building and that. Um, what can you, you know, tell us about um, that bond and you know, how it's been going, sort of like, you know, the kind of support you're getting logistically in terms of, like, mm, food. You yeah, know. no, definitely. That's Food's been one of the biggest things. Like, obviously, we've had a lot of, I can't really say too much, but we have had um, a lot of people from SCA who work there who have come and given us food and things like that because, obviously, they can't show their support publicly. They are in danger of losing their jobs and fines. So they've come in and they've um, given, people have been sending us food up in little baskets. We have a basket that we push down a window and then send people give us food. And it's been really random things, but it's been very constant. So it, people, the unions, gave us a shower people have been very supportive and been sending us food daily mums you know walks with their kids and dogs through the park have been giving us oranges and stuff in the morning it's been really lovely my champions yeah and that shower is like a portable shower yeah yeah it's like a portable camping shower that has hot water so it's great we were in there for a week without a shower and sun kept pretty smelly (laughs) so (laughs) so it was great to have a shower um but yeah no the support's been really tremendous we've been getting like i haven't eaten that well in years so much fresh fruit and vegetables and it's it's really lovely and very sweet and it Really makes me very emotional because it's such, it's so amazing that people are willing to give us, I don't know, their food. It's great. Yeah. I think, um, the amazing things, um, as someone, because in Melbourne, there's actually a number of, there's been a number of occupations, like currently there's, um, the Bendigo Street occupation mm. that's, um, still ongoing, though it's, um, though it has become a bit more settled, as in, um, because basically some, uh, group of, act- a lot of people probably, listeners mm. probably know there's a group of activists and um, people have um, occupied these vacant houses. Mm. Um, it actually started off with, um, you know, people sort of occupying, you know, people just sort of working on rosters to occupy a place, but now it's gotten into sort of more settled community feel with just sort of people actually living there and sort of almost making lives, though there's no expectation that um, 
um, that it's anything but a political protest. But mm. I guess in terms of maintaining long term, they had to sort of get some people there to just sort of stay there permanently um, mm. for for then for now. Um, and there's also been um, there was also the recent occupation of Flinders Street intersection, which lasted for like um, in the in the Dongdao protest, which lasted probably like 13 to 15 hours. It lasted from I think. 3 p.m. till midnight at 2 a.m. Um, and what what point I wanted to make was, you know, these um, these sort of occupations are really sort of a good way of like, you know, bring different sort of people together mm, um, in solidarity. And um, in the case of the Dondao occupation, there was actually uh, a passby that um, kind of like, you know, walked past and, you know, he was sort of had politically, he was kind of like had a bit of a mixed consciousness about it. Um, but, you know, through talking to him and, um, you know, explaining, you know, the issues, you know, he started to become convinced and he actually started to support the occupation in the <laughs> end, um, which was um, really, um, really kind of like a positive thing. But then there was also a lot of passbys who kind of made a lot of um, kind of very crude kind of mm. racist statements against the occupation. So what's it like at SCA? I imagine if you've been getting donations of fruit yeah. and stuff, you must have been having some of those interactions with locals as well. Yeah, def- and a lot of them are very, you know, good on you, like this is great, we're getting a lot of, you know, and all the one of the great things is all the media articles have been positive, there hasn't been a negative article about us, but the, the community support, like, you know, we have kids waving in the windows going hello and we've been passing them down things like bubbles and stickers because... We have um, an artist up there who works with those materials, so she's been giving them out to the kids. And it's been a lot of really great support from older people in the community as well, and they're all very positive about it. So I've had no, you know, no one come up to the window and given us a negative, you know, anything negative at all. So it's all been positive support, which is great. All right. I um, guess we have um, five minutes until our next interview. Um, um, well, f- that's our second. Oh, we have a surprise. Well, that was almost like an interview we just did with Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In France, um, talk about politics in France. Um, there's actually, um, since this article was written, um, the mobilisation um, that it's going to refer There's basically French workers and students are set to hold a new national mobilisation against the El Cromo labour law, um, which undermines um, workers' rights. Um, that protest is actually um, happening right now. I think there's over thousands of workers and students involved, and I actually saw some pictures on Telesur this morning, and there's quite a lot of um, police repression of these protests. Um, to actually give the background um, for this... Um, this work law that's the subject of the protest um, represents like a significant um, deregulation of France's employment law, um, similar to the neoliberal deregulation that has occurred in other Western countries. Indeed, many of the changes, um, this is an article actually written about French politics in the latest Green Left Weekly by Elizabeth Latham. Um, Indeed, um, um, she writes that, you know, indeed many of the changes seem mild in comparison to conditions in Australia because France's labour movement has successfully fought off or managed to limit the impact of the previous assaults on their working rights over the past 20 years. Um, a central um, aspect of the law is greater ability for enterprise and industry, industry 
industry-wide agreements to undermine France's Labor Code. Um, this includes working and allowing arrangements to cut penalty rates for overtime and increase working hours. Um, the law also makes it easier for enterprise and industrial agreements to reach, to be reached by removing the ability for unions representing 50% of more workers covered by, um, covered by agreement to veto the agreement. Um, it also makes it easier for companies to sack workers and cancel agreements even when companies are not experiencing financial problems. Um, so these laws, um, it states in the article that, you know, they've been deeply unpopular in France. Um, of course, there was, a, in response, there was a petition, um, circulated by feminist activists and former ministerial advisor for the governing Socialist Party. Um, attract Caroline de Haas, um, attracted 200,000 signatures in the first four hours online. Um, it quickly became the most signed online petition in France's history and currently has more than 1.3 million signatories. Uh, Opinion polls show that 70% of people in France are opposed to, um, opposed to these reforms. Um, despite this um, opposition, um, the, the, the more militant, um, the more even, um, um, despite this opposition, the more militant unions have been able to draw members from the more conservative unions into the campaign against this. Um, yet. As I sort of mentioned before, there's been kind of like, you know, a lot of sort of police repression um, happening right now, the current mobilisation. Um, you know, throughout the movement, um, mass mobilisations have faced um, sustained repression um, by right police. Um, because students dominated the early period of the mobilisation, the violence was initially primarily directed at students. Um, yet... Yes, this repression has increased in scope and intensity over time. There's been, you know, injuries from tear gas, um, tear gas canisters. Um, the largest day of violence was during the June 14th protests where protests, where police used, not protesters, used 1,700 tear gas canisters, 150 sting grenades, as well as flashboard launchers with hundreds of injuries reported. I guess you can kind of say that, um, that's probably more extreme than anything we've seen in Australia. Um, there was also, um, in response to some of the, the terrorist attacks um, that um, have occurred in Paris in the recent times, um, they bas- this basically kind of like served as like a, a precedent to implement more sort of harsh laws and more police powers. Um, I thought you were going to say it served as a precedent for France to break imperialist ties with uh, countries throughout the Middle East and around the world. Ah uh, no, 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 so that's not actually, uh, no, that's not actually it. No, they basically, um, basically were just seen as an excuse to actually, because um, actually, um, when that terrorist attack happened, um, the one, the tragic one that happened, I think last year, it was around centered around the time when there was those big mobilizations uh, at the Paris conference, yeah. and so yeah, there was a lot of kind of like police repression to prevent those protests from actually happening. Um, of course, um, they've been. Um, from the, pol- the police have actually tried to ban the June 28 protests in Paris. Um, it would have been, if this had been successful, um, for context, it actually would have been the first time that a union demonstration had been banned in France. Mm-hmm. Um, including this, this, um, this sort of big sort of, you know, there's this big campaign, you know, happening against this labour law. Um, what, it's actually what it also includes is more to, um, to it than just, um, you know, unions, students and sort of, um, workers mobilising against this law. There's actually been, um, included, it's actually included, um, occupation, and um, this is known as Nord de Bolt. Um, it's a, occupations of city square, um, um, city squares along with ongoing, um, industrial action. 
um, to talk a bit about um, these um, these occupations that's been happening, um, Nondo di Bolt, um, this can be translated as standing night, up all night or rise up all night, um, began as um, the occupation of the Place de la Republic in Paris after the May March 31st protest. It kind of draws um, inspiration from the Occupy movement, um, which included quite a number of these occupations of city spaces, um, the Spain's Ingaragros movement and the Arrow Spring. Um, it um, rapidly um, it rapidly um, spread um, to more than 50 French cities and towns within a week. Um, this organising of these occupations kind of um, occurs through general assemblies. Um, Nodi Dobolt has drawn thousands of people into activity and created a space to discuss not only the struggle against the labour law, but the broader direction of French society. Um, the Nodi Dobolt General Assemblies in April initiated the call for joint militant union mobilisations for Mo Day. Um, and of course, um, in Going from their sort of different industrial actions, there's been um, there's been sort of like unions have in since late May have um, begun intensifying industrial action in transport, oil refining, publishing in the power industries, um, and of course the most disruptive strikes were in the oil refineries. Um, all eight of France's refineries were hit with strikes and blockades on May 24th, which resulted in a fuel shortages across France. Police tax broke um, up the blockades by June 3rd. No, nothing. And um, the government sought to undermine the deflect opposition by amending the law several times. Um, these amendments removed some of the worst features, but many destructive and unpopular measures remained. Um, while when the bill was introduced to Parliament, it faced more than 400 amendments from left parties, including the left wing of the governing um, par, um, par, PS. Um, to avoid these amendments and ensure that the bill um, passed, um, the government enacted a clause of the French Constitution on three occasions. Um, the clause allowed the gov- allows the government to pass laws through Parliament without taking a vote. The only way a law can be rejected in such a case is if a senes motion against the government is passed within 24 hours. Um, so now I guess what sort of um, we're given sort of like the background um, from there. Um, what's sort of been happening? Um, the sort of, um, sorry, just could find lost something. Yes, got it. All right, so basically, um, um, Rallis and Holland um, hoped that forcing through the law would suck the life out of the movement, um, as it happened with the movement against pension tax in 2003. Um, but their reasons, um, you know, as Lisbeth writes here, is as um, it is unclear what will happen with the movement. But there are reasons um, to think that we might not see a repeat of this 2010 experience. Um, um, and she argues that, you know, the 2010 movement disappeared quickly after passing the pension law, but there are a number of factors that may give the current movement ongoing life. Um, the government's... The government's refusal to test the law in Parliament has robbed it of considerable legitimacy, particularly as Holland has previously been strongly critical of that constitutional clause. Um, In response to um, a previous government's um, use of the clause to pass the first appointment contract law in 2006, Holland described it as a brutality in denial of democracy. Um, The final, I guess, you know, as concluding this article, the final test of this struggle is to extend the movement will come with Thursday's mobilisations, which are actually happening right now. So stay tuned. Um, you can check um, websites like Telesaru, um, who will be who are covering the protests right now, and you can kind of um, you can find out where where this is um, happening from here. Good. It's all happening in France. <laughs> mm. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, so we've actually got our interview. Um, sorry for the delay, listeners, but we finally got our interview. Um, so what, we'll just get a switch to line for. Yep. All right. Um, so we have Rebecca Saunders on the line. Hello, Rebecca. Sanders. Sanders, yes, Sanders. <laughs> okay, it happens a lot. Right, um, so I'll just introduce you. Um, Rebecca is, uh, Sanders is um, a, a historian who is actually going to be doing um, a walking tour. Um, at 11 a.m. at the State Library, that's correct? That is correct, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, your walking tour is about, um, this sort of movement, um, to win, um, public toilets for women, um, because, um, back in, uh, I'd imagine the early 20th century. Um, so what that's can you, right. so what can you tell me, uh, tell us about this, um, history? So, uh, men had public urinals in Melbourne from 1859, uh, but women didn't really have access to uh, street toilets, basically, as, as we think of them today, until 1902. So there were toilets um, at the Eastern Market and, uh, and also at um, sort of the Viaduct and Princess Bridge and in some of the shops, um, but that was really it. So, you know, there weren't very many places to go in town, which made it very difficult for women to spend large amounts of time there um, so uh, it's really about sort of being able to use public space and go out into public mm. um, but they also had quite strong views about uh, how the toilet should be constructed where they should be constructed how they should be run um, so a lot of the um, people associated with the women's suffrage movement ended up getting involved in um, you know petitioning council uh, to inspect city lavatories, for example. Um, they were very worried about um, female lavatory attendants in women's loos and, and their pay and also their conditions. Um, so it, it's a really kind of um, important step that we don't think about very much, but uh, it's a very long time to, to hold on for, for public toilets, really. <laughs> 40 years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the title of the of the walk. Mm. And um, so, what were kind of like? Because um, interesting enough, um, this sort of time period um, sort of predates kind of like um, the advent of kind of like the nuclear family in the 1940s. And um, interesting knowing, you know, what were the kind of sexist kind of attitudes that kind of justified this denial of um, of building mm. public female toilets? Um, I mean, I guess it it had always. Being that way, I mean, you know, the, the women's sphere was was definitely in the home. It wasn't in public, so women weren't really expected to go out in public much. Um, I mean, it's really only from the 18th century that they start, you know, do a lot of the shopping at markets. Um, but then they're expected to go straight home afterwards, so they don't really have a social life outside of the home unless they're going to other women's homes, um, and that's usually friends and family. Um, you know, they're, they're not sort of you know, spending time in department stores and all that kind of thing. That, that's really something you start seeing, I guess, around, you know, the 1890s um, onwards, really, um, with, with the building of the arcades um, and, and, you know, kind of doing the block. You know, women, fashionable women would sort of walk up and down Collins Street and, and through the block arcade. Um, but that was really the only space that they were expected to be seen if they were genteel. And, uh, and if they weren't, you know, they might end up on Burke Street for some reason or another, but they probably try to spend very little time there. Mm. Do you have a question, Bronte? Yeah, I, I was just thinking with working class women who would have been, you know, working and doing, like, there would have been, I think, a little bit of public toilet access. Like, it's interesting that there was public toilet access in the shops. 
and so, then groceries, yeah. but not, you know, if a woman's going out and about and running errands or, you know, just, you know, wanting to go out for longer, there isn't. So it's it's funny how it's constricted to work only and yeah. to the home. So women are meant to work and then go home, and it's that's quite quite funny. Yeah, yeah no, so it's, it's mm. a very different era. So, that, that you know, it's, it's a bit like... You know, when you talk about the French Revolution and they're asking for the freedom of association to meet in public places, well, the, the same kind of thing is going on for women, you know, in, in the 1890s. It's not that they are, can't do it, but it's illegal. But there's all these social constrictions and none of the infrastructure is set up to enable them to do this. Mm. Um, so it's very difficult for them to spend large periods of time in public spaces. Yes. And, Oh, yeah. So, you go. Sorry. yeah, I had a, um, my next question was, you know, how, um, so clearly this campaign for female public toilets, um, was won. And can you tell, do you have like any more kind of details about this campaign and how it is, how it is won? Um, so the, um, the Women's Political and Social Crusade, uh, sent a petition to the Melbourne City Council in the 1890s. And there was also a bit of letter writing that went on, um, uh, by women agitating for women's public toilets. Uh, and then the um, uh, what's the name of the association? Sorry. <laughs> the, um, there's another association, the Women's Political Association, sorry. Um, so a point you know, looked into um, the running of these facilities in the early 1900s. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, you sort of have um, two toilets turn up sort of, I guess, in, in the first decade of the 20th century. But then there's another wait for more street toilets. So it's, it's not that, you know, they suddenly started popping up everywhere. Hmm. Um, hmm. You know, that it's, it's very much a gradual thing. And, uh, and for them, you know, it was very important that they were underground. Um, they were very concerned with uh, maintaining their privacy. And, uh, and in fact, they, you know, sort of put forward requests, you know, is it possible to get, to make it illegal for men to loiter around these toilets? You know, women often pass them by instead of going in because, you know, their privacy is, is you know, being destroyed by these men being there. Um, so it's, it's a really, really different time. Um, and they're very concerned, um, you know, not not just with the, the women who are using the toilets, but, but also with the lavatory attendants who are there. You know, they don't want them to stay out late, which is really interesting because if you can't stay out late, you know, then that means, you know, other women can't stay out late if mm. there's no female lavatory attendants in the loo. So mm. it's um, it's really interesting. Hmm. Actually, I, this is a weird question, but who, what exactly, who are lavatory attendants? Did they have, in that time, did they have, like, people hanging around the toilets, like, as attendants or something? Yes, absolutely. So they kept the toilets clean and they also took the money. So you had to pay to use these loos. Oh. oh still quite common in Europe. I visited yes. there recently and I was kind of shocked to have to hand over money every time you want to go to yep. the toilet. Yeah. yeah that, um, that, that sounds like something that would um, discriminately kind of like, you know, penalise um, poor people if they're Absolutely. Un- yeah. unable to afford the toilet. Mm, yeah, yeah, so the, it's the campaign, it's, you know, not they haven't, they didn't win it. They had, you know, two, as you were saying, it was slowly growing. But it seemed, you know, it's a kind of thing that would only be really access to rich people. You know, a, 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 you know, a poorer person wouldn't have been able to access those toilets. And the, the way you're talking about it, were the rates of sexual assault quite high with these toilets? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, 
women have a tendency to underreport this sort of thing. Mm. What you what you do find is is um, stories of women who had given birth in toilets, so they they were desperate for some some private space mm. um, out of wedlock, and um, and and yeah, were were, um, were having to give birth there because um, it was as safe as it could get. These were really liminal zones; they weren't seen as as um, you know. I mean, I, I guess today you know we we actually still you know. If you ask most women, would you use a public toilet or, or go into a department store or a shopping centre? They'd probably still choose the shopping centre. It's remarkable how little has changed. Um, so, so yeah, but, you know, for, for women who were in trouble and, and had nowhere else to go, um, these things were happening. There are newspaper reports that you hear about. Um, and, and if you go, so go through the National Library's trove um, search, which is fantastic, you can find out some more information on this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just by doing a search on it. I, um, so I guess we're going um, sort of low on time now. I'm yep. sorry for I've been interviewing you late because we had some technical issues. But I guess um, the last right. well question is um, to sort of um, end briefly on describing the walking tour for tomorrow. Like you know, get um, to for listeners to maybe get intrigued by the po- uh, by going to it or possibly. Yeah, so so the walking tour for tomorrow is I think it's nearly sold out. There's two tickets left when I looked. Mm. Um, so uh, I'll probably run another one. So you can go to my website uh, over the next couple of days, which is history creative at, uh, sorry, historycreative.wordpress.com, um, um, or you can just look me up on Twitter or Facebook. It's ERS History. Um, and uh, the other thing that you can do is I'm actually going to be um, down at an exhibition that's also happening as part of the Fringe Festival tonight. It's the 1C1 art exhibition happening at the Princess Hill Community Centre. So if you haven't managed to book a ticket and you'd like to talk to me more about this, come on down. It's, it's on from 6 till 10. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Yes. Yes, thank you very much um, for doing the interview with us. And maybe those uh, the, the listeners will um, take up those last two tickets. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. been very popular. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Right. Right. Thanks heaps, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Bye. <laughs> Alright, so um, before our next interview, we'll go on to um, just announcing a few quick events um, from the activist calendar. Um, f- um, firstly, there's um, going to be a film screening um, on this f- um, tonight of The Hunting Ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a critically acclaimed documentary that tells the stories of students who have been sexually assaulted on US um, university campuses and their fight for justice, which will be followed by discussion. That's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. Um, there will be on... There will also be a comedy night um, on both Friday and Saturday night, um, Political Science US Election Comedy Special, um, basically a satirical guide to the upcoming US election uh, and featuring a fantastic lineup of guest performers. That is at like 8.30pm at the Fringe Hum Lippian Club Main Theatre, 44 Errol Street, North Melbourne. Um, And there will also be... Next... There will also be... um, um, There'll be a meeting on making Melbourne a hands-free zone at the 27th of Tuesday, 6.30pm at the Shreys Hall at the corner of Ligon Victoria Streets, and it's organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, there will be a documentary premiere of Tunnel Vision at the Acme um, Federation Square on October the 2nd. Um, it documents the fight to stop um, the $18 billion east-west link toll road that would have drastically changed Melbourne um, and so that will be an interesting film to watch 
Um, there'll be a forum on West Papua and the struggle for independence. Um, West Papua was seized by Indonesia in 1969. Um, the occupation um, has been supported by Australian governments and mining corporations, and the meeting will discuss the West Papua freedom movement and what we can do in solidarity. Um, that is going to be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street at 6.30, and um, it's hosted by Socialist Alliance, and it's happening on Tuesday, October the 4th. Alright, so um, let's go play a quick uh, nap. Sorry, we um, listeners that the activist calendar has been kind of shut, cut short um, simply because of time constraints. Um, we're going to be moving on to our next interview quite shortly um, with Sue Bolton, um, who's TV's uh, Sue Bolton, yeah. Moreland councillor. Um, we have Sue Bolton on the line. Um, she is um, currently running for. She is um, Moreland's. Um, Socialist councillor in the South East Ward, um, and she is good at running for re-election on October the 22nd. Um, so, hello, Sue Bolden. Hi, how's it going? Although, one little correction, uh, North East Ward. Ah, North East Ward, yeah. <laughs> I guess um, the kind of um, first question to ask is, um, you know, what is your kind of elect... Um, can you tell us about, you know, your election platform and, you know, what makes you distinct from the other councillors who are running in the ward? Well, I'm running, as I did last time, on the slogan of community need, not develop agreed. And I feel that that sums up our anti-corporate, uh, anti-corporate politics, um, that we, we think that governments, uh, be it local council or state or federal, are too, um, close, too supportive of corporations at the expense of ordinary people, ordinary working class people. And so that sort of sum has always summed up my approach um, to the role um, as a social science member and as a counsellor. And also we've been um, involved in the, in the Moreland area since I've been on council in um, trying to, I guess, empower residents to um, raise their voice because there's no way I could win anything in council as just one vote. Um, basically, everything that I have managed to achieve on council has been a result of community organisation, mm. um, which then puts pressure on the bureaucracy and the councillors to really... Um, force them to acknowledge issues and that doesn't mean I've won everything but I have actually won quite a lot of things considering I'm just one vote on council. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about some of these um, victories that you've had in um, the past I guess you've been on council for three to four years or since 2012? Four years oh, yeah. by so the time of the election and the sorts of things I guess I've managed to achieve um, one was a couple of years ago, two or three years ago when um, a big amount was chopped out of the climate budget um, on the night of the I think it might have been 2013 or 2014, there was a big chop made into the climate budget um, and it was a fairly spontaneous motion moved by a particular councillor that a majority of councillors voted for. And I um, proposed at a public meeting of Community Action Moreland that there be a protest 
um, normally they were only planning to send a letter expressing their disappointment with the Moreland Council decision and I thought that just wasn't really sufficient. So I proposed an actual protest with a view to trying to overturn that decision or change that decision or uh, in some way at the following council meeting and I think that was important um, because there were, was a protest um, accompanied by lots of emails and phone calls and so forth to various councillors and that did result in that uh, meeting um, I mean it couldn't totally overturn the budget but actually passing a motion for the money to be put back into the uh, into the climate budget um, at the mid-year you know financial review so that was actually a big victory and you know some of the other councils say oh the protests and so forth didn't have anything to do with that but there's no way that they would have um, passed a motion um, to reinstate that money so quickly if it wasn't for community opposition and community organisation. Um, then there was the issue of the respite service for parents of kids with disabilities and that was a decision which had been taken by councillors at the end of 2015 um, and because it was all in confidential business the community didn't know um, and it wasn't until suddenly the community and the carers got a letter on the same day on the day the cuts were due to start um, that they realised what had happened and that was something where I worked with parents um, and also with the union, the Australian Services Union, but especially with parents and we had to try and find a way of making contact with parents because a lot of these parents are really stressed from, you know, working full time, caring for family members with disabilities as well as caring for other family members and you know this is a group of parents who are absolutely exhausted and don't really have energy left for extra political campaigning in addition to negotiating with services on behalf of their family members etc um, but we but we managed to gain some publicity make contact with other parents um, and to prove that it wasn't just a couple of parents who were whinging but a generalised problem and issue and I think we shamed the council into overturning the cut to respite care so I mean those are just two examples and there's some other examples as well but I think those are two examples and um, you know the whole council is such a bureaucratic institution and bureaucratic a lot of bureaucratic processes which are very difficult to negotiate but it's um you have so you, the only way you can cut through all of that is with resonance campaigning yeah. um does zane and bronte have any questions they'd like to ask yes yeah, so i was just um keen to ask what are some examples of ongoing campaigns that you've, you've kind of been working on for the last few years but which would be good to get re-elected to council so you can keep pushing on on those fronts well, I mean, there's certain issues which haven't finished so that, for instance, um, one of the issues 
that I've been involved in for quite a few years now um, was the issue of the Ballot Maroop, which is an Aboriginal school site. And I was involved um, uh, in 2010 when the government was threatening to shut down the school and there were big, big protests to try and keep the school open and you know the school gym was occupied for about 10 months. And, you know, unfortunately we lost that battle. The school was closed. Um, but then we began a campaign to win the site back as a First Nations community hub. And I think me getting elected to council at that point was really important because I've been able to um, consistently push that issue through council. And mm. that's actually given... The lo gave the local activists uh, strength uh, mm. in their campaign. That was really important to get those motions through council. But then those um, those First Nations community members also kept the pressure on council and uh, then we managed to get the Rundry on board and we've managed to stave off the sale of the land for now, the state government has been pressure, pressuring Moreland Council to agree to um, the land being sold. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened, and uh, there's an, a feasibility study being done to create a First Nations community hub, and there's a lot of confidence that that will happen, that the site won't get sold off. But that's not a finished struggle. Um, hmm. There's still a number of phases that have to... Uh, be gone through and at various points Moreland Council has looked a bit wobbly at the knees on the issue and but I've, we've been uh, through a combination of me being on council and the activists outside of council we've managed to maintain the council support for that campaign I mean that's certainly one thing um, I think um, I mean this issue of the respite care I think isn't resolved, isn't finally resolved, because while we've um, managed to win back this service, um, there are big changes afoot with the federal government planning to take over the service and um, and just leave people with disabilities to end the, to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, take over the remainder of the service, use it just for elderly people, but fully outsource it, uh, which is also how the NDIS will work as a fully outsourced scheme. And I think I'm totally opposed to this kind of outsourcing. Um, we've seen what outsourcing does with um, TAFEs, where this outsourcing to, um, you know, private training organisations has actually absolutely gutted our public TAFE services mm. and um, that's been absolutely disastrous experience and I think this will be the experience with um, aged care and disability care. And there's sort of a range of other issues as well in terms of um, also trying to fight for council to take genuine climate action measures uh, not just window dressing um, there is a lot of you know at the level of local government and federal and state government there's a lot of window dressing on a lot of issues there's a lot of perception of um, you know there's a lot of a big perception that Moreland is 
a progressive council, and it probably is compared to a lot of other councils. But there is an awful lot of superficiality of, you know, just talking about multiculturalism and diversity without necessarily giving people rights and without actually taking a stand against racism. And then there can be a lot of discussion about, um, you know, uh, being a climate, uh, climate leader um, because they've got this certificate of carbon, uh, that it's a carbon neutral council. But that carbon neutrality is on the basis of uh, using gas as a transition fuel in the leisure centres and buying carbon offsets. When, you know, iSaver pushed for 100% renewable energy and steps to be taken in that direction rather than this um, giving any support to carbon trading, or sorry, carbon offsets um, industry, which I think is just um, cheating. Uh, it's not genuine reduction of emissions, but actually cheating. Mm. So there's a range of projects that I'm certainly keen to be involved in and keen to continue if I get re-elected. I, I guess um, the last um, sort of question before Randa is, um, I think you've sort of talked about this already sort of in, indirectly, but I kind of want to sort of um, ask a question about, how, you know, as since you're um, as a socialist, how does your 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 political positions as a socialist inform you know the work that you do on a council and you know um, I think on one of your election leaflets um, well um, it also there was also um, a statement on why you were a socialist and um, how this sort of council position kind of like informs um, those beliefs well I think uh, as a socialist um you have to recognise that ordinary people should run society. It shouldn't be run, society shouldn't be run on their behalf by unelected bureaucrats or by um, politicians. It should be run by them. Now, we're, at the moment, we're stuck with the sort of electoral system that we've got. Um, so I think as a socialist, you have to put people first. And I, I think I see my role as being a little bit like a union delegate. That doesn't mean other councillors see their role as being like that. But I think as a union delegate, you have to... Um, OK, there are certain issues where you might go and advocate um, on a particular issue, but really the, mo the best um, form of action is organising people to stand up for themselves and helping people gain the confidence to organise themselves and speak up for themselves so they're not just speaking through an elected councillor but they're actually putting their own voices forward and I think that's the most important because a community that's organised um, is, an is a community that can't just be pushed around by governments or corporations and so I've put... Um, most of my energies in that direction of rather than being on lots and lots of um, committees and so forth that I've sort of tried to, um, you know, help people get organised so that, say, if people come to, you, to me with a particular issue, um, and especially if it's an issue that affects more than just them, encouraging people to take up a petition, chat to their neighbours, um, maybe organise a community meeting, which I can help with, um, 
come to a council meeting and raise their issues because then they get to eyeball the councillors directly and also the council bureaucrats. Um, but also there are other pe members of the community there who get a chance to hear about your issue. Um, and so it's a way of sort of building support or interest from other members of the community. And, and you know, there might be a protest or in a public meeting or other forms of activity. But it's basically, I think, the critical thing is for people um, to be able to have their own voice, um, not just via via someone like me. Mm. And then I think other critical things to watch are things like um, privatisation and outsourcing. Now, a lot of these things are done in fairly sneaky ways in the same way that the um, uh, privatisation and um, transfer of public housing has occurred in this state under both Liberal and Labor governments. Um, so some of it's been just sold off and some of it has been transferred to not-for-profit housing associations under the guise of social housing. So there are a lot of sneaky ways in which things can happen or um, that you'll, you know, things will be put to you in a way that you'll only get this service if you agree to this cut and so forth. Mm. So there are thousands sort of ties and um, a thousand threads sort of trying to pull you in a very neoliberal direction. So you have to be very, very aware of that and try and fight against that yeah. and try and fight against any kind of trade-off mentality. Mm. That, yeah. um, I think and, we're, and we're, we're beginning a bit over time. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, Sue. We're going a bit over time. But is there um, like a website or something that you could refer to that we can um, to help for listeners to get maybe involved in or find out more about your campaign? Yeah, so um, I've got a website... Um, uh, which is www.suebolton.com. Great. All right. Um, thank you very much, Sue, and um, thank you very much for the interview. Um, have a great day. Thanks. Right. Bye. All right. Um, that's the end of Green Left um, Weekly Radio, um, so stay tuned um, for Beyond Zero Emissions.